Kia ora and good morning, St. Augustine's. Um, I just want to start by saying that um, I'm one of those people who uh, always seem to be surrounded by others that take the Christmas spirit a little bit too far. Seem to be surrounded by those that want to put lights up in November. Um, they want to inflict Mariah Carey on me before I'm emotionally ready to do that. Uh, and then they want to talk about whether we get to include Die Hard in the season or not. And um, often that happens way before I'm ready. So I find that when it comes to Christmas, I often have to take a few deep breaths before heading into it because I know that those people who seem to go overboard with things like tinsel and baubles and sugar seem to have all the permission to go overboard with those things. So I have to kind of take a few deep breaths in my apprehension as we head into it. Um, but, you know, actually Christmas is full of good stuff. I love Christmas actually when we get to it. You know, we get to celebrate, be around family, uh, give stuff to each other. Um, but I do find that amongst all of that, um, we kind of forget the shocking nature of what Christmas is actually all about. We quite easily sort of brush over, I guess, the, the crazy in the story. Um, it kind of gets a little bit lost in the mix. What's actually happening in the Christmas story is the humility of God meeting the willingness of human beings in this story to do something really, really special. But when we really understand what we're saying here, it is actually quite difficult to swallow. It's quite uh, an extreme idea to stomach. And what I want to kind of do here is, is bring some of the crazy to the surface. I want uh, us to have it undomesticated. Um, to, to not have it airbrushed, but to actually understand that the reality of it is kind of nuts. So we've just had this passage about Mary's response to the angel, and I do want to kind of get into this. What is being said to Mary here? What is about to happen to her? So what we're really saying is this. We're saying that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent deity, uh, creator of all reality from particle to galaxy, the uncaused cause, the sustainer of all reality, alpha and omega, beginning and end, unfathomable ground of being, the great I am, Yahweh, the pre-existent, preeminent logos in unapproachable light, God himself in all his fullness, or as he's referred to here as the most high, this God, this God enters into human history. This God becomes an embryo inside the womb of a poor teenage girl. God puts on saliva glands and a spleen, and uh, he's subjected to the vulnerability and risk of a childbirth with all the pain and the mess that comes with that. God experiences all our grossest bodily functions. But on top of that, he grows up in this obscure backwater town um, to a poor family learning the family trade. Eventually, he starts proclaiming this good news that he embodies. He heals the sick, he serves the poor, and he sits with the despised. He's treated with disdain, he's held in suspicion, he's abused, and eventually he's tried and crucified. God himself is killed as a religious outsider, as a political dissident, and as a traitor to his own people. So are we kind of getting the unsettling size of this? This is the mystery of the incarnation that we're celebrating here at Christmas. God 
has joined himself to us in all our horror and alienation and pain and our darkness. He hasn't turned his nose up at any of it. He has actually known it himself so that it can be healed. So the answer to the, the human condition isn't sort of 12 rules for life. Um, it's not a list of precepts, and it's certainly not just literature about love, describing in poetic form how much he loves us. But actually, the answer to the human condition, it takes place in flesh and blood. And God cannot abandon us now because God is one of us now. It's kind of crazy. But this is only one half of the conversation of God working in humility with, with flesh and blood humanity. This still had to be met with human willingness. And that to me is almost even more insane, that this whole plan to save humanity kind of hinges on human participation. It's this dynamic coming together of God and humans and the fragility of every day. So let's not breeze over this. Um, yes, Mary is highly favored to be chosen to do this, but it comes at a cost. Participation with God often means surrender. So what is Mary essentially agreeing to? Well, in this moment, based on what she knows about the situation, she's basically agreeing to be an unwed mother with all the disgrace and cultural shame that comes with that. Probably followed around for the rest of her life by the question, who's the kid's father? Which we do get little hints of in the New Testament. There is no guarantee at this stage that Joseph will stay with her. In fact, he does plan on leaving her, as we learn later on. She's probably agreeing to be on the edge of poverty, ostracized by her friends, ostracized by her family, a young mum isolated when she's learning to do all this stuff for the first time. So she's young and she's powerless. She's this anonymous girl that gets chosen to be the vessel of the most incredible act of God. But it does come at a cost. And we can't forget this faith that Mary has. This is an amazing part of the Christmas story. Essentially, Mary is giving up her life script in a profound act of trust in a bigger story. And this isn't just a, a spiritual add-on to get a greater sense of peace and comfort. This is laying down her life script. And we all have our own life script about how we imagine our lives to go, um, all the things that we want to happen. And we're not happy when this often gets rewritten by circumstance. And Mary probably has her own. She's gonna marry Joseph, have some babies, you know, raise a family, um, live a nice quiet life. These are all good things. And she lets it all be taken from her in light of a story that goes beyond her own. She gives up what she hoped in at the feet of a greater hope beyond her own story. And so she says, let it be to me. What an amazing person. That she has this hope that goes beyond her own dreams, desires, and hope, trusting in a bigger story in the face of a future that actually looks quite chaotic. So story time. Uh, back in the dark ages of uh, 06 and MySpace, 
I was on MySpace one day, and uh, as I was scrolling around, I sort of came across a girl that I thought was pretty cute, and um, consequently slid into the old MySpace DMs, um, and then after this sort of found uh, reasons to be in the area, um, reasons to hang around, uh, and then, you know, after a little bit of this, we got to talking, um, we exchanged a few emails back and forth, uh, and then before long, uh, we were dating. Um, Isabel was way cooler than me, far more intelligent, she was very funny, uh, and just all around us, a really special person, and um, it was really fun getting to know her. Um, and I remember sometimes she had a curfew, so we would sit uh, either side of her house gate, so we weren't technically breaking her dad's rules um, until like the early hours, and it's very cute. Um, we dated for a little while before going back to her friendship and stayed in touch. But three and a half years later, um, I found out that, that Isabel was sick. Um, she had liver cancer, which is notoriously the, uh, the, one of the more aggressive forms of cancer. And so all of a sudden, her life was in the balance. Um, you know, she went to get some treatment, she had some surgeries. Um, but it was really unclear if she would actually live through this. Um, and it was just shocking. It felt so wrong for someone young like this to, to be going through it. And the speed of everything happening meant that, honestly, couldn't really process it at the time. Um, but anyway, we went out for dinner just after I found out about it. And uh, so I picked her up and, you know, as we're driving to dinner, um, she's making jokes about being the dying girl, which I find pretty uncomfortable. Um, and uh, in some ways it was like old times, it was really fun, but obviously really overwhelming at the same time. Um, and people experience uh, illness and terminal diagnoses differently. Uh, everyone walks this road in a different way. Um, so over dinner, as I'm trying to put this stuff together in my head, um, you know, I ask her the question, you know, what is this like for you with your life hanging in the balance? You know, what is going through your mind? Um, and I don't think I'll ever forget her response. She actually said, um, I actually feel lucky to have been chosen for this. Um, the love I've received uh, and the effect that it's had in pointing people to God, um, I feel blessed to be the one to do this, and my time has become all about what I can give. And I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I, I didn't have the framework for it. This, this person in front of me had reframed themselves, and I was playing catch up with this. Um, a few days later, there was a gathering at her house, um, and we didn't know whether she was going to be able to go overseas for like a last shot treatment or not. So essentially, we didn't know what kind of farewell party this was going to be. Um, so people hung out, they took photos and talked. Um, and then we prayed for her healing altogether. Um, the whole time, Isabel was tired and in pain. But you talk to anyone that was there and they'll all say, you know, she was glowing. Um, she was so full of joy and a, a peace that transcended language. It was really amazing. Six weeks later, um, Isabel passed away. She was 22. Um, I thought I would 
be able to talk to her again. I thought I had more time, but it all happened really fast. But stories began to pour in from, from all directions about the people that she had touched this whole season, um, of the way she accepted her new script with a purity of faith, the way that she loved people, um, the way that she pointed to a bigger story. This whole thing became bigger than her. Um, she had this hope that was bigger than death, and it was like we were coming into contact with something really real in her in this time. You know, a little while before she died, she put on her Facebook, I am not afraid of death. I am afraid of a life not lived for his glory. It continues to be one of the most amazing examples of let it be to me um, that I've ever been close to. And this is not a script that would have been chosen by her or her family or her friends. It would be much better to still have her. Uh, and I've grieved this all over again, getting ready to do this talk. But we all witnessed a life script being handed over for something bigger, the story of God drawing people to himself even in the very worst situations. And this is a hope that couldn't be overcome. And it doesn't make it worth it. Um, the absence is still felt in tears of futility by those that knew her. But this trust was palpable. It was a lived reality. It wasn't a detached theological concept. It led one of the medical staff to, to say that she was the most beautiful person they'd ever seen. And I've often asked myself the question, could I do the same? If I was in a similar position, could I be as brave? Could I trust if my story was suddenly so different? Could I embrace it with the same level of courage? Could I trust in this humility of God working in flesh and blood humanity and lay down my life script and a hope that goes beyond the material? Augustine famously said, he who created us without our help will not save us without our consent. And there is a sense that God wants to invite us into a plan far greater than we could dream of, that we could actually be the means of communicating and grounding something that lasts forever, that we could be the sites where the world meets God and perhaps comes into contact with a reality that doesn't have an expiry date. That we could be the community living out of a different story because history really does have a good ending. And the phrase God with us isn't just a lovely sentiment of extra value, comfort and peace, but is the irreversible reality that God is with us and will be with us always and won't ditch us because now he is one of us. And if God and humanity are bound together now, what happened to him is going to happen to us. His unending future is our unending future. And this is the seismic promise of Christmas. That we can experience illness, pandemics, job losses, geopolitical instability, mental health crises, and even death. And while God isn't the architect of any of that, we have a hope far greater than all of this. 
Will we, along with Mary, dare to say to God, let it be to me, and trust in this, even if life is nothing like what we would have chosen for ourselves? Can we do it when the rubber hits the road? Because when we do, we get to be a place where the world actually encounters this hope. That's what I want. I want to be in on that story.